This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. With the soul of an advocate and the mind of an entrepreneur, James Maskell has spent the past decade innovating at the cross-section of functional medicine and community. He's going to be our guest this week on the Race to Value, and this is someone that's created the world's largest integrative medicine conference with record-setting participation, and he's worked with physician communities around the world. I mean, his organization and his best-selling book of the same name, Evolution of Medicine, prepares health professionals for the new era of predictive, preventive medicine. He's also the author of The Community Cure, which shows that community is the most powerful force to transform health and how medical practice should bring about the power of the group visit as a disruptive transformation to improve population health. James Maskell, I mean, he's someone that's an in-demand speaker, impresario. He's been featured on TedMed, Huffington Post Live, TEDx, as well as uh, lecturing internationally. You know, Daniel, this is, I think, one of my favorite podcasts. I had so much fun interviewing James. Yeah, Eric, it was a fun conversation and so inspiring. James has proven himself a proactive healthcare provocateur and visionary leader. He's got an uncanny prescience. He seems to achieve increasingly firm footing in increasingly turbulent times. He's someone who deserves your attention. In this episode, we talk about community being the most powerful force to transform health, you know, community groups, belonging, getting rid of isolation and medicine's been slow to adapt to this reality, but now solutions are at hand in advancing health value. Well, without further ado, let's hear from James Maskell as he joins us this week on the race to value. James, it's such an honor to have you on the show this week. You're such a fan of your work to improve population health through community-based healing and lifestyle medicine, your voice in leading our industry towards a more integrated model that unites allopathic medicine with lifestyle medicine and preventative care is just so needed right now. Thank you. Yeah, such a great honor to be here. I'm excited to talk about all things value and become a big fan of the podcast. So grateful. Oh, thanks, my friend. And we appreciate that support. Well, let's start our conversation today and, you know, talk about the evolution of medicine. You know, over the last two decades, you've been in the trenches of health creation in America. You've met thousands of doctors and have interviewed Fortune 500 CEOs and all these internationally respected gurus. You did a TED Talk a few years ago where you discussed the 
common point of frustration amongst all these healthcare experts and business luminaries was that medicine is just evolving too slowly to overcome the epidemic scourge of chronic disease in America. And of course, that's what we're trying to do here and with the value-based care movement. And I know when you started your journey towards value transformation, you were initially frustrated, but there was a quote that you mentioned in your TED talk from our Buckminster Fuller that kind of changed your perspective. And that quote is as follows. You never change the things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And I know that inspired you to advocate for community-based models of health, similar to what we see in other parts of the world, like blue zones where people live to be over 100 years old and there's much lower incidences of chronic disease. Something also I read about in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers, where he talks about the people in Rosetto, Pennsylvania in the 1950s, it all came from the same part of Italy and they relocated. And that town in Pennsylvania had such a low incidence of disease and they had no coronary artery disease in anyone younger than 55. And scientists were trying to figure out like, what's going on here? This is a population that really didn't exercise and smokers were everywhere, but they had relatives living elsewhere that did have high incidence of uh, disease. And ultimately what they found out was that there's something to be said about the social connection, the, the town's social structure that emphasized community and how that impacted their overall health and prevented chronic disease. So as we start our conversation around this evolution of medicine, I just wanted to ask you if you could discuss the impact of community on chronic disease and how should American medicine evolve in this value-based care movement, particularly in primary care, to recognize the power of relationships as a social determinant of health? Yeah, such a good question. Well, look, this has been, yeah, 17 years in the making. I guess the first question that I was interested in 17 years ago was, is chronic disease reversible? And that was because from my training in health economics, I saw that both the UK where I went to university and then the US where I was born and now have lived for the last 17 years was sort of an, an upward exponential increase in costs. And there's only so long that you can have an exponential increase in costs before something breaks. That's taken me through working in clinics, working with doctors, you know, helping doctors think about their product and service mix and, and how they're working. In the last few years, in 2019, I just took a sort of a, a moment to, I guess, take stock of everything that I'd learned since I moved to America in 2005 and came to the conclusion that actually the biggest driver of all-cause mortality is loneliness and social stress. And that's not just something I made up. That's, there's plenty of science that shows that. If you look at all the major cost drivers, the biggest, most costly chronic conditions, they're definitely exacerbated and in some cases caused by loneliness. You know, lonely people use the health system more. So if you're talking about value, it's a big problem with recidivism and using higher cost elements. And so I wrote my second book, The Community Cure, really looked at the original name for it actually was A Cure for Loneliness, because I, I recognized that what I had seen out in the marketplace for the last 14 years was an innovation in healthcare where patients were treated in groups and solving loneliness was a part of the medicine. And so I, I thought about calling it a cure for loneliness. And we sort of documented in that book, all the different ways in which chronic disease was being driven by high social stress. But when I actually got into writing the book and realizing what it was all about, I realized 
in these groups when lifestyle medicine was then applied to it. And instead of just solving loneliness by putting people in groups, there was actually a sort of a lifestyle curriculum that people went through where people actually made behavior changes and sort of like the biggest drivers of chronic disease, these lifestyle and behaviors, you actually end up with the community cure. You end up with this combination of lifestyle medicine and group medicine being a potential foundation for the population care pyramid, should we say, like below primary care, there's this layer that's kind of missing that used to be provided by the, you know, the, the social structures of the blue zones. And ultimately, my thesis in that book is that the number one thing that we can do to transform health outcomes and to build successful population health is to rebuild that community layer. And that ultimately in healthcare, you have budget assigned for that, Medicare, Medicaid, commercial insurance. And so this should be the foundation of building this new layer of value-based care. That's so profound. Just thinking about that population care pyramid and the social structures as the foundation of that. And, and thinking more about Rosetto, Pennsylvania in the 50s and the five blue zone regions around the world where people live so much longer than average, they seem to have a standard of living that's not unlike what we saw hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, where multiple generations in a family lived under one roof and everybody knows their neighbor. And there's something to be said about that fabric of our ancestry and why we must really resolve the isolation of modern living and come together with a shared intention to take personal responsibility for our community health to do it together. In your book, you reference the work of Raghuram Rahan. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he was the chief economist of the uh, IMF for years. And his book was really powerful because I think there's all this debate as to whether government or markets should solve our problems, right? So, you know, there's a classic, um, I guess, political debate in America, but always the debate is like, who should be solving these problems? And his thesis is the only reason why we're relying on either the market or the government to solve these problems is because this third pillar in society, which is community, has been sort of desecrated by technology. The steam engine creates some technology that reduces community then you have the automobile, and now we all live in our little single-family homes. Then you have the internet. That means that the you know you have, or you have shopping malls that take people out of the city centers. Then you have the internet that allows people to sort of get everything they could ever need from the comfort of their own home, delivered by an Uber driver or an Amazon driver who you don't know and will be different tomorrow. And so, like we we sort of have this great in-person ability that has been created where we don't know the people that we're interacting with. And, uh, you know, Charles Eisenstein says, he says, we're helplessly independent, which I thought was a great quote. Yeah, so powerful. <laughs> helplessly independent. This technology revolution that's so powerful in so many ways and brings, brings us so many opportunities has ripped apart the fabric of our traditional communities. And we're interconnected in ways that we've never been before, but more isolated than we've ever been. And, and many of those practicing medicine often don't even realize the importance of the human relationships and how critical it is to our greater well-being, just like the food we eat, the water we drink to nourish our bodies and feeling that hunger or that thirst. Those are signals from our body that tell us that we need to do something, you know, take care of a need that we have. And similarly, loneliness is a signal telling us it's time to start connecting with other people and take care of that part of ourselves. And the research data supports this with loneliness and isolation being linked to higher mortality and increased risks for common killers. Specifically, there's a 29% higher risk for heart disease, 32% for stroke and 25% for cancer, 
and 40% for Alzheimer's when loneliness is involved. How do you think the healthcare system can best address social isolation to improve population health and reestablish community? Do you think there's a role that group visits and relationship-based models of delivering value-based care can play in mitigating the health risks of loneliness? 100%. I mean, that's basically the thesis of my book, The Community Cure. Like there was one interview that I did with one doctor. And as soon as I finished the interview, I put the phone down essentially. And I was like, man, we got to write a book about this. This this is it. And this was a, a Dr. Jeffrey Geller, who's a physician. So 20 years ago, comes out of medical school and is doing his residency and suddenly realizes that you know, two people could have the same issue and it affects them completely differently. Whatever issue it is, two people go on very different paths from the same input. And what was that? It was like, do they have the right social support structure or not? And ultimately he was invited to this sort of empowerment group uh, that was run by, it was called C2 Puedes. It was mainly undocumented immigrants. This is in the, the poorest part of Massachusetts. And they had a weekly group where they would get together and you know talk about things. And he was invited in. And ultimately what he realized straight away was that, you know, these people were supporting each other in a way that many of his patients didn't have. And he recognized loneliness was driving um, so many of the outcomes in his practice, but loneliness didn't really have a billing code. And so, you know, it was like, well, how do we treat this? And going to that first group, he recognized that something very special was happening as people supported each other. And it was really powerful for their their mental health, their physical health, their ability to sort of be in the world. And so he started on a, on a process to innovate and got some money to start doing some group delivered medicine. And he's become a leader in the field. He, he teaches for the integrated medicine for the underserved. So he teaches his empowerment group model. Um, he now teaches his model to just all across the country. They've created a ton of research off the back of it. So, you know, he was someone that I interviewed and I was like, man, this is really powerful. And through that, and over the last 15 years of just interfacing with medicine, I started to realize in almost every possible sub niche of medicine, right? Every different clinical area from cardiology to pediatrics, to OBGYN, you know, to all these different areas, someone had innovated at the cross section of community, and health empowerment, and particularly health empowerment around lifestyle medicine. And the outcomes were, you know, almost without fail, sensational. And so I just realized like not many people know about this and it's actually not that difficult, not that different to execute. And that was the goal of my, my second book was just to sort of spread the word amongst not only doctors, but also health systems that there was a solution to loneliness and that if you did it in the right way, you could also solve other big issues that health systems are trying to solve healthy behaviors, you know, first amongst them. That was the journey. So I wrote that book in, in, it came out, I wrote it in 2019. It came out January 1st, 2020. And very quickly, all community medicine was sort of, or all group medicine was sort of canceled overnight when the pandemic showed up. Well, James, you know, I too personally have experienced the the, the power of this group visit model. I, I was at the Dell Med Health and Value Institute working on a, a value-based care program there with leaders. And I remember a teenage girl who was brought into a, a group visit of peers going through cancer. And she was talking about that experience and then just started crying and just, you know, how, talking about how 
much of an impact that made in her life and how she was able to convalesce and, and overcome that condition. And, you know, it just left me wondering, why are these um, group visits so underutilized? There's a lot of doubts and objections in the healthcare community. I mean, that has to be the reason why it's not done. You know, maybe it's concerns around efficacy. It might be physicians that are too burned out to try something new. They may be concerned about loss of revenue if they if they miss the the single billing of the EM encounter. But I also think a lot of it has to do with the the privacy concerns that are out there. And it just seems like HIPAA was kind of the big hammer that that hit in the mid-90s. And it, it's been unrelenting and it's created this hypersensitivity to any type of sharing of information, almost to our detriment, which is counter to what we're trying to accomplish in population health, where you democratize patient information to help improve outcomes. I mean, we have to think about these community-based models as a new norm, not only in our society, but in healthcare, where we have more connection and more empathy and more social connectivity. And we have to overcome the loneliness and isolation that we have in our society, especially coming out of the pandemic. So just wanted to ask you, James, to kind of build upon the conversation here. What do you see as possible inflection point for having this type of community model in healthcare? Do you think COVID-19 maybe is a flashpoint for change? You know, how do you see us being able to innovate an industry within the value-based care movement to look at strategies like this to better address chronic disease and, you know, and have better outcomes in improving population health in our country? Yeah, that's a great question. Look, I think you identified, you know, many of the reasons why this hasn't taken off to the degree to which its elegance would sort of justify it, right? When you think about it in the value-based care space, if you have, you know, even just take something as simple as, as Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Which is obviously a very proven group model in one particular, it's not really medicine, it's really a social construct, but like in that structure, you know, one person who's got sober, helping someone else get sober, value is created significantly to both of those people, right? The teacher gets value, the student gets value, and value is created to the healthcare system too, because they're going to use far fewer healthcare services in the future and it costs nothing, right? So the elegance of that delivery is, is really powerful. And I guess one of the things I came to really understand is that most chronic illnesses, lifestyle-driven chronic illnesses that take up 86% of costs in America have a lot more similar to alcoholism than they are to getting hit by a car, but we sort of use the, the acute care model and apply it to, to chronic illness. So there's so much elegance to it. Ultimately, you hit on some of the major ones. Yeah, privacy and HIPAA is a big deal. I think privacy reinforces isolation in very clear and obvious ways. If you look at some of the most successful group models, you have way more reasons to trust people who are sitting in a room with you that have a similar chronic illness and live in a certain chronic you know, area than you do Mark Zuckerberg or an owner of a social media platform, but you're more than happy to give your information to those groups. You know, there's a sort of a, an irony there. But, you know, I would also not underestimate some of the other things that hold back groups from taking on can be like really boring, annoying details, right? So is the front desk person aligned with at the clinic? Are they ready to do something new? Can the workflow be adapted in a way that makes it easy? How is the charting going to be done? And is that going to be a real pain for the people in the practice? Like, is the doctor ready to shift from being a doctor to a facilitator, right? Where you actually have almost the opposite skills of for years, you know, for your whole career, you've been paid for being an expert. 
what I've come to see in group medicine is that actually expertise is not really what's needed. It's about, in some cases, not having the answer so that you can actually create trust in the container. And when I saw Jeff Geller do his groups for the first time at Integrated Medicine for the Underserved, first of all, I was like, I'm witnessing a level of mastery that is like very, very clear. But secondly, I realized like, you know, what percentage of doctors are really going to go through this process to master this skill? And so, yeah, there's all these things that sort of stand in the way, never mind the billing stuff and the details and those kind of things and COVID. But I think coming out of COVID, a couple of things. One is if we didn't realize that isolation played a big role in our chronic illness, we know now, right? It's very clear. Go into any pediatrician's office and ask them what's going on with the 14 to 18 year olds in their office. And they'll tell you, speak to people in your community, especially those that live big cities that have been like cut off from people. I mean, I live about two hours from San Francisco and I remember going to a music show last October and just being a little bit, you know, just realizing like people have kind of forgotten how to be with each other a little bit. You know, there's been so much, I think, collective trauma through going through this pandemic experience that it's actually changed the way in which, you know, people engage with each other at quite a fundamental level. So I think the pandemic has really exacerbated that. And what I'm excited about is that what I've done in the last two years since COVID hit, when COVID hit was really like, hey, I'm more convinced than ever. Like the book had just come out. I basically spent the last year convincing myself that this is like this missing layer in healthcare, that if it could be redeployed, would actually transform health outcomes, would be a foundation for the transformation to value-based care, is such an elegant solution at delivering value, is valuable to fee-for-service and value-based arrangements. I was like, this is it, man. This is my life's work. This is what I'm here to do. And at, at the moment the pandemic hit, I was like, like, hang on a minute, I might know more about this particular topic than anyone at this moment. And we've got to work out how to do this online, right? There's a shift to telemedicine. Even my father at 84 years old knew how to use Zoom. And I was like, are there going to be some benefits to doing groups online that you can't predict until you do it, right? Just like there were some benefits of telemedicine that you couldn't really predict until you did it. There must be some benefits. And so for the last two years, all of that knowledge that I learned and all of those sort of friction points in adoption, we've been really thinking through to think, could we take all of that lift off of clinics so that like the friction to the adoption of group medicine as this foundation of population health could be as frictionless as possible, should we say? And so, you know, having done that for the last two years, I'm now extra excited because the signs are that if you take away those friction points, if you solve some of those objections for clinics, and if you take a lot of the operational risk off the shoulders of the physicians and the health systems by taking it on yourself, you now have a very, very scalable solution that is sort of becoming recognized by those people we talk to as something that is really necessary if people want to try and control costs. James, I'm really fascinated by everything that I'm hearing from you. And, you know, I want to shift the conversation just a little bit. I know the research findings show that social stress and isolation, as we're talking about, they're the biggest drivers of all causes of mortality, even more than smoking, lack of exercise, or poor nutrition. I want to see if there's a way to tie it together with the emerging field of human social genomics that shows how these external inputs can affect the body at the level of gene expression where disease is created. I'd love to take our conversation to the genomics part and the impact it can have on precision medicine. And, and this concept of precision health, however, it's broader than genomics-driven care. It reflects our need 
to tailor today's healthcare system to specific requirements of individuals at a time and a place of their choosing. It's about helping individuals thrive based on factors that are specific to them. And, and it requires contextual knowledge about a person's behaviors, environment, genomics, and more. I'm interested in the concept of precision health that, that focuses on preventing disease before it starts and using the latest technological advances to develop the tools to do so. And it seems to me that precision health at the individual level can be a great complement to community health conducted at the group level. Uh, can you share your perspective on how industry might consider utilizing a more holistic approach to medicine that focuses on keeping people healthy by personalizing prevention and treatment for individuals precisely? And do you see us getting to the point where we can create personalized care pathways by leveraging things like genomic sequencing, AI, or biometric data from wearables? 100%. Yeah, great question. So yeah, I first heard about human social genomics, I think in 2015, I was sitting at a conference and uh, Dr. George Slavich was on the stage. Um, he's the head of the UCLA stress lab. And it was his data that really knocked into my head that, you know, even at a cellular level, the biggest driver of all cause mortality is social stress. And one example he gave that's really powerful is, you know, if you get fired from your job, let's say a whole team gets fired, you have a, if you, you know, you have a sort of a breaking of the social bond in that way, where like your whole team gets fired from work and you're not working with those people anymore. You have a two time risk of depression where if you actually the only person that gets fired. So now all of your social community has gone and you're the only person that lost all of those, you have a 22 times higher risk of depression. And they can see that at the cellular level, at the level of gene expression, that that's what the UCLA stress lab does. So, you know, that's really interesting to sort of understand the mechanism. So with regard to your second question, you know, I think I think one of the things that we that we may think of if you take a step back is you think, well, group medicine is almost the opposite of precision medicine, right? Because all these people are in a group and doing the same thing together. And on precision medicine, it's N equals one. Well, I've got a, a couple of things to say about that. One is all precision medicine, all functional medicine, all lifestyle medicine, it all rests on one underlying fundamental assumption. And that is that people are empowered to participate. One of the biggest things that I think has been overlooked in all of precision medicine, P4 medicine, functional medicine, is that because they're testing it with rich people, everyone's empowered to participate. You know, who are the people that are going to the Human Longevity Institute and spending a hundred grand on getting their full genome sequencing? It's rich people, right? If you give them a protocol, they're empowered to do it. Once we start to look at this at a population health level, you start to realize, well, most people in the population are not empowered like that and can't participate like that. And so my argument in the book is that ultimately you need this like baseline layer of empowerment through groups to get people to a stage where they can actually participate, right? When they're in a position where they can actually make new choices, whether to take this supplement, whether to do this exercise, whether to, you know, have a certain sleep, there's social determinants of health need to be solved first, right? That's the very foundation of the population health pyramid needs to be solved first. And unless you're solving those things, Precision health is a fantasy, right? It's a fantasy because if people can't participate, it's just not something that's in their, in their remit. Now, the most exciting thing that I talk about in the book, The Community Cure, is that there is a vision for what I would call precision public health, 
which is essentially that if you can create a baseline level of participation with groups and with one person empowering another and people solving each other's problems at that sort of foundation level, there's no reason why the medicine in groups can't be individualized. And in the book, I look at some really innovative clinics where, as an example, there's one clinic that I mentioned, Dr. Christopher Moat. He's out of uh, Colorado, really smart guy. He recognized that he was doing this advanced sort of precision lab testing with his patients. And what he recognized is that the spiel that he had to give to explain what this test meant, what the numbers meant and what was going on was 90% the same with every patient because they have to understand like, what's this measuring? What does it mean if it's high? What does it mean if it's low? So that was all the same. So he was like, hang on a minute. I'm recommending this precision gut test to 10 people in a week, rather than having them all back for a half an hour appointment. Why don't I just have them all in a group and let's see what happens. So actually this is even more efficient online than in person, because imagine online, imagine you're having a group consultation. You have your specific results on your screen that no one else can see. So you're actually able to see your results. And then the doctor is taking you through what this test means, what a high result means, what a low result means, and taking you through all the different factors. And so he's almost like telling you how to read your own lab panel. And then what's even interesting after that is once you go through the format, the sort of spiel that he would do for everyone about what this test means, when people then choose to ask questions about their own results, right? Those questions are typically valuable to everyone else in the group because one, you know, some people are scared to ask questions, aren't other, others aren't. So the, the sort of extrovert helps the introvert because he might be or she might be scared to ask that question. But secondly, what you start to realize is that, oh, we are all individual and the tools that I might use might be different from this other person. So there's definitely potential for the group methodology to create massive efficiency in the delivery of precision medicine. And ultimately that sort of efficiency is going to be needed to take it from concierge medicine to everyone. And so another part of the book was really just showcasing how group medicine is powerful for many things, but one of the things that it can do is operationalize person personalized medicine. And I think everyone in healthcare is trying to work out how to operationalize precision medicine because everyone knows that it's the future. It's so obvious that it is, but how do we get from here to there? My thesis is that groups will play a significant role in one, empowering people to participate and two, creating efficient enough structures for it to be done on insurance, in the system, in hospitals, in conventional care, rather than in concierge care. Well, James, I, I wanted to also talk about uh, behavioral health. We think a lot about that in the value-based care movement. I mean, we clearly have a national state of emergency right now in our country with this mental health crisis. Um, one out of five Americans, over 51 million people that are living with a behavioral health condition. As a citizen and a parent, you know, I'm also thinking about the linkage between mental health issues potentially and some of these school shootings. I mean, we've seen so many of those in this country over the years, like Columbine and Virginia Tech and Sandy Hook and Parkland and Santa Fe and now Robb Elementary and Uvalde. And in healthcare, this isn't as readily apparent for the layperson, but there is a direct correlation between the risk and progression of serious physical conditions like diabetes, stroke, and heart disease and cancer with behavioral health issues. It's just it, it's just very, very much a axiomatic truth and something that we need to overcome in our health system to help our country and our and its citizens get better. And there's also the 
the impact that it has on healthcare costs. I mean, the costs of a patient with a chronic health condition and a behavioral health disorder are two to three times more than a chronically ill patient without a behavioral health disorder. And there's people that are living with chronic physical health conditions. They're experiencing depression and anxiety at twice the rate of the general population. And the research is showing that there's better outcomes and lower costs when you do have these interventions in a group setting versus the individual setting. And in addition to the group-based interventions, there's also some really promising research out there on psychedelic medicine and how that can be delivered in an integrative uh, mental health clinic, such as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy that can enhance mental wellness while also guiding people to more uh, of an effective healing journey in dealing with their chronic disease. Pharmaceutical approaches to treat depression have had limited success over the last decade, so we have to be thinking more outside of the box, and you know, certainly ketamine and other additions to the psychiatric toolbox may be potential breakthroughs. So, James, I just wanted to ask you if you could provide your perspective on the mental health crisis in our country. It's practically all we're reading about in the headlines these days, and, and also I'd love to hear your views on how psychedelic medicine can be combined with lifestyle medicine to deliver a new model for mental health treatment for the future? Yeah, really, really important question. So yeah, first of all, the scale of the mental health crisis is unprecedented. And look, I'm not a doctor, I'm an economist. So, you know, it's pretty simple to me is like, if you have a 400% increase in demand for mental health services, how do you solve that problem? And you can't solve that problem. Like telemedicine does not solve that problem, right? Because telemedicine gives you at best, let's say a 20% uptick in efficiency that can't solve the sort of resource constraint given that there's a 400% increase in demand. So the only solution really just from an economic point of view, right? Or a resource point of view is you have to use groups. So that's, that's just a, a foundation. Obviously a big part of getting people in groups is that you solve loneliness and you introduce people to each other. You have people feel safe. You know, so much of the new research about mental health is that it's a sort of a, a biopsychosocial. There's biological reasons why you have chronic illnesses, but mental health, there's, there's psychological reasons and there's social reasons. And the reasons why I think the drugs haven't worked is because you can't solve a biopsychosocial disease with a purely biological input, right? There's a mismatch there. If the patient's condition is largely psychosocial, then the biological input won't work in a, in a long enough time frame. So I think groups are a, a really obvious fit in this. In our groups in HEAL community, we've seen that three quarters of the people with depression who come into the groups with depression have a significant decrease in their depression in the episode of care, which is three months or six months. And that's two thirds for anxiety. So ultimately the, the majority of people, when you deliver a fully biopsychosocial intervention, the outcomes are tremendous, especially tremendous when you compare it to the real number needed to treat numbers that pharmaceuticals develop. It's really striking the difference. So I, I think that's the future of mental health a thousand percent is, you know, getting people into groups, taking them through a curriculum, dealing with systemic inflammation, helping people build new skills, understanding the bi-directionality of physical health and mental health and how what's happening in the body affects the mind and what's happening in the mind affects the body. All of those things we know are true. So what are we doing about it? How do we deliver that? And that's why I'm so passionate about the biopsychosocial approach. To your second question, you know, I've had the pleasure to meet 
thousands of doctors over the last few years, and many of them trained in sort of advanced lifestyle medicine strategies. And uh, last year, one of those doctors who I had the chance to meet took a job or was hired by a leading psychedelic medicine company out of Utah, where they had a bunch of clinics that they were doing a combination of ketamine therapy, because that's now legal, and then also research on on others, MDMA and psilocybin. They were treatment centers for that or or, uh, research centers. And so, you know, she was brought in because their leadership understood that there's more to mental health than even just psychedelics, right? Psychedelics are extremely promising. The initial numbers that are coming out on psychedelic therapy for PTSD, major depressive disorders, treatment resistant depression are very exciting. But ultimately, you know, the the question then is, will people just sort of relapse into what they're doing before? And we need to actually change the inputs, right? We need to change how the patient is being in the world. So they came to us at Heal Community and said, hey, if we prescribe these patients with ketamine, can we put them into one of your virtual groups? And then after the episode of the ketamine is finished and they've had this sort of peak experience where they realize things about themselves and they're ready to sort of tread a new path, can the groups be a structure where they can then learn new skills and really start to participate in life in a new way? And it's been exceptional. I'm super excited about this sort of combination of lifestyle medicine delivered in groups, plus sort of ketamine as and um, psychedelics generally as a way. The ketamine and the psychedelics can sort of flip the switch, and then the groups can give the sort of integration, grounding, real health experience that's needed to actually transform the behaviors so that long-term the mental health is good, the physical health is good, and whatever cost that intervention had, the value is exponentially increased. James, I really appreciate your unique philosophical and and data-driven approach to our conversation in healthcare. Functional medicine philosophy focuses on the cause of drivers of disease and seeks to determine how and why illness occurs and how to restore health by addressing a root cause of disease and dysfunction. I'm fascinated by the potential for integration of functional medicine in healthcare. Once research findings are published and how this knowledge is ultimately transferred and then adopted into practice. It's interesting to think about how so much of American medicine is based on patterns of practice behaviors, going back to the 50s and 60s when medical knowledge didn't change all that much. And it's estimated that the doubling time of medical knowledge in in 1950 was 50 years. In 1980, it was seven years. And in 2010, three and a half years. In 2020, it's projected to be 0.2 years, just 73 days. Not only is medical knowledge doubling every two months, but the uptake is extremely slow because despite scientific evidence, we're asking people to question their belief system and become more skeptical about the efficacy of certain treatments and interventions. I'm sure you've read the research on how it takes an average of 17 years for evidence to reach clinical practice. And that's peer-reviewed evidence-based research that pertains to reductionist approaches to medicine. I can't even imagine how long it will take for the industry to move to a whole person care model that emphasizes lifestyle and functional medicine. Given the inertia observed with knowledge transfer, how can we get physicians who are often focused on just treatments like surgery and pharmacology to better recognize the human being? Or will research that shows integrative care better aligning with value-based payments, will that be the catalyst to drive adoption of more holistic care models emphasizing lifestyle medicine? 
Yeah, I think so. And that's why I wanted to come on the podcast, because I think you guys have such a great handle for the value-based movement. I think there's a lot of hope in our industry that once you know medicine shifts from a focus on doing things to patients to keeping people well, then it'll just be like an obvious fit. And I think that that's a lot of our hope is riding on you guys, right? In a certain way to flip that switch. And we, you know, it's getting more and more momentum all the time. Obviously the shift to value has been, you know, very slow and slower than anyone would have, would have wanted. Let me give you an example. You know, you mentioned there functional medicine, two critical pieces of literature that have come out in the last few years, both center around the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, which is really the first major medical and academic center to adopt functional medicine in any meaningful way. So in, in, I think, October 2019, the first data came out of that project, which essentially showed, and this was in JAMA, it essentially showed that functional medicine outperformed conventional medicine for a range of chronic illnesses. So a focus on lifestyle, root cause approach, empowering the patient to participate was more effective than conventional medicine, and not just any conventional medicine, like Cleveland Clinic conventional medicine. So pretty high standard there. They have a, you know, obviously a high standard of care. But more interestingly, I think in 2021, research came out in the BMJ showing that if you then compared group functional medicine, which they were doing in the Cleveland Clinic for a few years, where everyone had to go through, in order to come into the system, everyone had to go through this 10-week, two-hour-a-week program that they had created called Functioning for Life, the outcomes were not only better, so the outcomes are better. Hyper, you know, group medicine outperforms hyper individualized medicine, right? So the outcomes are better and the costs are lower. So if you want to talk about value based care, better outcomes at lower cost is what we want. And so that was actually another reason why I was sort of stimulated to write my book, because when that came out, I heard about that research in, in February 2019 at a conference where Dr. Hyman presented on their sort of raw data while it was still going through. It only was published two years later. But I was just thinking about it from an economist's point of view, like if we agree that personalized medicine is the future, and then we also agree that the costs are going to have to significantly come down for widespread adoption, you know, here was now a moment where you could show that better outcomes at lower costs through a group model now had the potential to become a new standard of, of care in that direction. So I, I'm excited that there's there's research coming out. I think there's more and more. And you know, ultimately, your point is well made that, yeah, it does take 17 years for new clinical guidelines to be adopted and adapted. But I also feel like the pandemic really created a moment. Like in the last year, we have seen an absurd increase in interest in new doctors wanting to learn about functional medicine. Like they're kind of like, hey, why didn't I know about vitamin D and why didn't I know about gut permeability and why wasn't that taught to me in medical school? And because it seems to be a big issue when it comes to cytokine storms and, you know, death rates from COVID, right? So there's, there's doctors coming this way, but there's also health systems. I mean, we're very close with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and they are seeing an exponential increase in health systems coming to them and saying, hey, we need to understand lifestyle medicine and we want to start doing it. And I think that has been really driven by the pandemic because I think people are realizing like, one, we need it, right? America has shown to have worse outcomes for many reasons, one of which is that we had just 
a more unhealthy population that was always a chronic cost, not an acute situation, and it became acute during COVID. But I think what's also interesting, and, and this, this may be something, this is totally new information that I'm excited to share on this podcast, there is a financial incentive starting to happen. So we were meeting recently with a hospital. I won't mention the name of it, but they said, in our market, we're the number three hospital. And ultimately, we realized that our path, our most likely path to become number two or number one is to give the patients what they want. And the demand for lifestyle medicine and functional medicine has far outstripped the supply for all the reasons you just shared, right? The 17-year gap that is in implementation, and, but there's not a 17-year gap in podcasts, in summits, in books. So plenty of people are learning that there's a new way of delivering chronic disease care that focuses on empowerment that focuses on the root cause, that focuses on changing patients' behavior and adopting lifestyle. And up until now, it's been just certain doctors leaving the system, hanging their shingle and meeting that demand. But I think now you're starting to see whole health systems realize, okay, there's plenty of demand out there in the community. If we can just move a little bit quicker than our competitors, we can take market share. That's exciting for me because that says there's like market economics are going to come back to really push this forward, not just everyone's idea of what should happen. Well, James, I, I couldn't agree more in sharing in that optimism. I, I, I do sense that there's a market economics that are really driving and necessitating a change towards lifestyle medicine and value-based purchasing. And, you know, we get asked the question all the time, being leaders in the value movement, having this podcast, you know, leading our institute, you know, everyone asks like, well, when's all this value going to happen? When are we going to reach that inflection point? And it takes decades to make this seismic shift that we're trying to make in our country with 20% of our GDP. But, you know, to your point earlier, I, I do think that the pandemic is really a, that black swan event that we needed to catalyze a lot of what we're trying to accomplish. And, and then there's just a, I think, a elevated societal awareness around inequities and the benefits of lifestyle medicine. And, and there's obviously a, an awareness that the medical system has to evolve to better deal with the, the modern academics of lifestyle-driven chronic disease and spend a lot more time and attention designing and, and implementing clinical models for prevention. And we're also seeing here at the Institute, there's a lot of our partners that are looking at lifestyle medicine, preventative medicine, functional medicine models, whatever you want to call it. But the one area that I guess we haven't really talked about in depth on the podcast today so far is how the payment structure and the business model is going to align with all of that. And that's what value-based care is really about. It's about creating the structures that are going to optimize physician and patient behavior to improve clinical outcomes and lower costs through that aligned financial accountability. And the state of the value movement is just so interesting at this moment. I mean, as I said, you know, we're at this flashpoint where there is change happening, but we're still trapped at the collision of moral and fiduciary responsibility. And we have this massive industry that's fiduciarily obligated to continue to maximize profit for investors. And yet morally, the science has revealed that the underlying strategy for creating and restoring, maintaining, growing, protecting health in the country is just so outdated. And we, there is a better way. And we're at this intersection where we have to make change. And I think the good thing is, you know, value-based care, it's clearly a bipartisan issue, lower costs, better patient outcomes, better consumer experience, better quality. I think we could all fundamentally agree on that. You know, obviously, the, the vehicle to which we go about doing that's a little bit in debate, but the CMS Innovation Center, they've been on the forefront and trying to 
accelerate the industry transition to value-based payment. And I just wanted to ask you, what do you think we're going to see as a, a refocus of value-based payment reforms that emphasize clinical models for prevention and align economic incentives to drive into adoption? Could you speak a little bit about what you see at this uh, juncture where value and lifestyle coalesce into something that's going to be transformative for our country? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's some there's some very bright sparks, green shoots, whatever you want to call them. You know, I think the ACO movement is very interesting. And uh, I think there's like an actual lifestyle medicine ACO that's sort of on its way to, to fruition. We've had some interesting conversations with a fast growing ACO called Vitalize Health, where, you know, they sort of recognize that if they can bring Medicare lives together and then curate the best sort of technologies that deliver the most value across those lives, across those practices, you know, they have the best shot at saving a lot of money. And so I think there's some exciting opportunities in the ACO model that's being driven right now. Obviously, the self-funded employer has the most economic incentives to drive value. It's exciting to see where employers are, how employers are choosing to spend money, I've been spending a lot of time in the last few years in a, in a listserv really looking at things like direct primary care as an example, right? Where companies will engage with doctors that are directly contracted to the patient and outside of the sort of weird incentive structures that are created in fee-for-service medicine. So I, I think there's, you know, there's plenty of exciting projects that will, will take us in that direction. You know, what I'm really excited about is the opportunity for innovation that is sort of like uh, paid on success. So some of the models that we've been working on have been like, could we work out a way where we could roll out groups at scale across a population and that if those groups were very successful in keeping people out of high cost episodes and keeping people healthy, that ultimately we and our partners could then be paid based on the amount of money saved. And if there's one thing that we know about American healthcare, it's ridiculously bloated. And so I think there's, there's an incredible opportunity there. It was just in the UK. And uh, one of the people that I, I gave as an example in this was a, a doctor called David Unwin. And David Unwin was 200, 2016 NHS Innovator of the Year. And all he basically realized is that he had got a few patients to reverse their diabetes with an aggressive lifestyle intervention, particularly with their diet. So low carb diet and other lifestyle interventions, he had actually managed to you know, reverse their type two diabetes and at such a level that um, he you know, saw the potential. So then he starts running groups. So he gets patients in, he enrolls them into these low carb type two diabetes groups. And he has the patients that he's already helped sort of be in the groups, almost like that Alcoholics Anonymous mentor, right? So that person who's in there, who's already done it. Forward four or five years, he's saving so much money on medications. And by the way, this is just in a GP surgery, so primary care, this is just one chronic condition, type 2 diabetes. This is just one category of savings, which is the cost of the drugs themselves. And by the way, in the UK, the drugs don't cost nearly as much as they do here because they actually negotiate with the drug companies for pricing. But in that situation, he saw that if you rolled out the same outcomes that they've seen, where essentially half the people who come into those groups end up reversing their type 2 diabetes, that the savings on those drugs, just those drugs, when if that was delivered out to the whole of the NHS would save 
a quarter of a billion pounds. Now that doesn't even take into account the changes in people's comorbidities or the changes in people's mental states or mental health costs that would obviously come along with that. But I think it's just super compelling. And so if I'm David Unwin, I'm thinking to myself, well, if I was willing to bet, I could have a way to roll this out across the whole NHS. And if I knew that if it worked, that I could make a percentage of those savings, the NHS wins, the taxpayer wins, and now there's a structure to do it. So the question is, well, how would you roll out groups across all those people? Because David Unwin's doing it in the foyer of his clinic. The obvious answer is virtually, where you could actually now take the idea of diabetes groups. You could have it be where every doctor in the country could prescribe people into that low carb group. Dr. Unwin could be the medical director. And you know, you could actually see a very clear path towards a contract in the NHS where these doctors plus these groups could get paid on getting people off diabetes medication. That's just one simple example. But I think that with the scale of technology multiplied by the data we already have, if we really can innovate on the payment structures, we can create massive incentives for what's happening in the minutia to be happening at a population level. James, I really appreciate the example that you shared, and I want to build off of that example and talk more about lifestyle medicine. You know, you were mentioning reversing type 2 diabetes, which is just astounding the impact that that can have. And this lifestyle medicine, these changes that we could get people to make, is it's a movement that's really gaining traction right now. You've got yourself, Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Mark Hyman, and the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and others leading the way. And There's another key leader in the news recently for advocating for lifestyle medicine, New York City Mayor Eric Adams. And a few months ago, Mayor Adams announced that New York City will be leading the way with the most comprehensive expansion of lifestyle medicine programming in the nation. And the expanded programming won't only touch the lives of patients served, but it'll extend to the families and communities of every person served, a true personification of the community health model. The expansion of lifestyle medicine services to New Yorkers throughout the five boroughs could be transformative in addressing the burden of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and other common chronic conditions with benefits that could really positively impact entire family units and those closest around them. I'd love to hear your additional thoughts on lifestyle medicine movement and what programs like this can do to provide more compelling case for integrating lifestyle medicine with traditional Western medicine. So they become one and the same so that they're treating the whole person and not just symptoms of a chronic disease using a reductionist model. And and given the high correlation between lifestyle and disease avoidance, or even disease reversal, as you've been speaking about, is lifestyle medicine the future of value-based care? I mean, to answer your last question first, yes, absolutely. Lifestyle medicine is 100% the future of value-based care. There's no other way around it, as far as I see. I think it has to happen. The only chance that we have to build a system where the majority of the population are well is through aggressive lifestyle intervention. Look, I'm excited about what's happening in New York. I think that it's it's some of the best sound bites I've ever heard in medicine. And that was really exciting to see that happening. I guess the question is always like, how do you, you know, actualize it? How do you actually facilitate it? What actually changes in the medical delivery? And I think actually some of the most exciting projects in community are not happening in the medical system, but certainly there's this sort of like, there's this bridge that is community, right? Part of it is in, in the health system and part of it's just 
in communities. But I think because the budget is assigned in the health system, that makes the make sense for it to build it. New York is one thing. I think the state of Florida is very exciting too. I mean, if you look at Governor DeSantis's healthierufl.org, um, this was led by the Surgeon General of Florida. I mean, there's a lot to like about that. Lifestyle medicine as a solution to reducing your risk of COVID, as a solution to reversing chronic illness, that made a lot of sense. And that makes a lot of sense. We haven't seen you know, quite as much of an emphasis. So it's exciting. It's exciting to see people talking about this at that level, because that has not happened in the 17 years that I've been involved. This is the first time that at a government level, at the city level in New York, at the state level in Florida, and even at the country level at El Salvador. The uh, Prime Minister of El Salvador came out with a whole COVID plan that was all about creating resilient humans and reducing the chance of getting a bad COVID infection by being healthier. These are all very, very positive signs. And I think it's a sign to anyone who's paying attention that this is the future and we better act like it. James, I, I wanted to think a little bit more about lifestyle medicine interventions. And you talked about, it sounds like a really great soundbite coming out of New York City, but we have to think about how to actualize it. And I think just putting that in, in a little bit more context, if we look at the ACLM definition of lifestyle therapeutic interventions, I mean, and I'll just read you know out of this definition, but that includes whole food, plant predominant eating patterns, regular physical activity, restorative sleep, stress management, avoidance of risky substances, and positive social connection as a modality delivered by clinicians and certified in that specialty to prevent, treat, and often reverse chronic disease. There's a lot to be said about how do you go about doing that. I mean, if you're going to have a good outcome and actualize those types of lifestyle medicine interventions, you ultimately have to change deeply rooted and ingrained human behavior and behavior change is so much more difficult working with low-income communities in those areas you might not have access to stable reliable housing or even a grocery store with access to healthy food and you're not going to have facilities for mental health and wellness you're often not going to have uh, access to transportation if you do have access to the health system you're going to be probably subject to a fragmented care delivery model which Vulnerable patients find especially challenging because they have to accommodate all those appointments and they can't even get to the appointments. And then you have pressures like income insecurity, social isolation, which we've talked about throughout the podcast. And also you have this digital divide. And then you have the peer pressures that may be there to adopt unhealthy behaviors like drinking and drug use. So I just wanted to ask you, as we look at these important interventions that need to take place in the healthcare community, at the city, at the state, at the national level, thinking about better lifestyle choices and self-management. How do we approach the human behavioral aspect of that? What would you say to those that are listening to this podcast that say, there's no way to do it? In these marginalized communities, for example, there's just no access to basic necessities. You have immense social barriers, you have all this peer pressure, these countervailing influences. And also you have these uh, critics that would say, you know, that's not the role of the healthcare system. That's the role of the nonprofit community. Uh, what would you say to those that are maybe in that contrarian point of view where they just don't get the, the they, they can't catch the fire for this vision for uh, value and lifestyle coming together in that way? Well, look, I, I think, you know, obviously dealing with some of the more foundational elements of the social determinants of health, like housing, 
is a really tough thing to be solved inside the healthcare system. However, I would say that certain elements of the social determinants of health are actually very possible to solve, you know, if you do group medicine. I hate to sound like a broken record, but in the research for my book, I actually went to Oakland and I actually participated in an innovative group model called Open Source Wellness. And I talk about it in my book. And what did I see when I went there, right? Okay, you mentioned transportation issues. I saw that in this group of 30 people, someone said, hey, I'm going to have a hard time getting here next week because, you know, my car is going to be in the shop or I don't have a car or I need a ride. Suddenly, someone else says, oh, where do you live? Oh, I live in that area. Hey, I can give you a ride. There's such an elegance in the fact that like more than one person can sit in one car at one time. And if they happen to live close and then they can actually have that additional social bond through riding together, there's an elegance in that that both the government and the market it's very tricky to solve. Like Uber could work, but there's still a cost there in the market and the government could, I guess, pay for your Uber. But ultimately those two people are driving the same place in the same direction. And one of them has a car and maybe two of them don't, they could all go in the car together. There's some really elegant solutions when you start delivering things in groups. And that was in physical groups, right? If you look at the research now, looking at where value-based care is going, one of the benefits of telemedicine is that more people have a smartphone than have a car. You know, there's a Harvard Business Review article that I read a few weeks ago that was saying the era of telemedicine is just beginning because they were saying like, and this, I think it was Robert Pearl was like, Hey, if you really care about equality and you want equity, people need to be texting. People need to be implementing because, you know, people need to be implementing virtually because that actually creates more opportunity. So I would say with regard to healthy food, you know, there are solutions that come from healthy food. One of the things that you can't do if you want healthy food and you don't have access to it is go it alone because it's very difficult to like order in an amount of a quantity that would allow it to be cost-effective. But, you know, in the book, I also talk about different innovations that we've seen where groups of people come together to order healthy food together. Um, there's structures where they're able to like order in bulk and then separate it out between the different families. You're seeing innovation in the bypassing of what should we say, food deserts by the fact that there are now, you know, are ways to one, grow food locally. And so you're seeing a huge resurgence in innovation with food growing. And I've interviewed some people who are doing that in the most unlikely places and growing food, but also doing vegetable boxes and that kind of stuff where they're able to order at such a volume and go direct to the source to the farmer where they're able to buy in bulk and then separate it out. And in some cases, even cook together, right? The synergy of, of cooking new meals together and then doing that in a social structure where there's actually not just the value of the food that you eat, but the actual process of cooking together in commercial kitchens, on a Monday when the restaurant's closed, right? So I have seen innovation in that way too. So I think that, yes, in a very isolated world, all of these problems are exponentially problematic. There are things that are very difficult to solve, like housing, but others of those social determinants of health are possible to solve. You just need to think differently and you need to create ways that you make it easy for people to work together. Well, James, there's one more thing that I wanted to ask you today, and I've really enjoyed this conversation, but you know, this has been on my mind a lot, talking about all the issues that we have to solve for 
And thinking about social media, the impact that it has on behavioral health issues in our country, just like we're trying to fix healthcare that's 20% of our economy, we're trying to fix social media where you have the fang companies, which comprise a lot of about 50% of our stock market, like Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, and so forth. I mean, Facebook is massive. They're going to launch the metaverse and, and really create this artificial world that takes it even a step further where people's lives are going to be in this kind of uh, dream state where, you know, there's an imagination of exotic vacations and thriving friendships and having photogenic healthy meals. But the reality is people are going to compare that exaggerated, idealized state of what they see compared to their reality of this world. And they're going to feel a sense of despair and isolation, you know, thinking that they're not living in an authentic way, even but their definition of authenticity is a little warped because it's based in this construct of social media. And then you have all the algorithms and that really focus on generating revenue based on conflict and tribalism. You get the dopamine rush, you know, based on likes and all the the social engineering that goes into creating addiction on these platforms. I just wanted to ask you maybe if you could share your thoughts on how do we solve for that problem in terms of, you know, the pervasiveness of social media in our society for all the good that it brings in, in social connectivity, it also creates a lot of challenges, I think, in mental health. I mean, we see that in the data with uh, teenage girls and suicide rates right now. I'm, I just would be really interested to kind of hear your views on that and, and how we can solve for that particular challenge. Oh, man, that's another one that's really hard to solve. I mean, you've got like the fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders to maximize profit, and you'd be hard pushed to you know, to go against that as the CEO of those companies. So like, yeah, I, I get it. And I think that's a huge problem. I mean, I will just tell you, you know, that, yeah, we, we need to find new ways for people to be together. And it's been interesting just in the last few weeks at, at Heal Community being in, in, introduced by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine to a number of pediatricians offices where there's like one lifestyle medicine pediatrician in a big system. And in those conversations come to realize that, yeah, these 13 to 18 year olds with high PHQ-9 scores are really struggling. They end up in the pediatrician's office, typically with their parents. And yeah, we're pretty excited about the possibility of prescribing those kids into groups so that they can have online relationships that can be empowering, that can be based in doing healthy behaviors consistently, that can be introducing people to other people that want to get healthy. So I think it's a small dent compared to the size of the problem. I don't have all the solutions. I've been really thinking to myself how valuable it is for me to be on social media, um, especially as my daughter's nine and watches everything that I do. And I left LA four years ago because I didn't want her to be in the middle of all that mess. And so, you know, ultimately I've been thinking about myself, like, is it valuable for me to be on social media? Obviously this podcast and, uh, you know, travels more if you have more um, social media presence, but I think it's time for all of us to really reflect on the sort of, we've been doing this for a decade now, right? Or more, most of us. So, you know, has this, if this hasn't led to the kind of upswing in happiness and healthiness that we're looking for, is it time to move on? And I think, I think there will be competition coming from more healthier interactions and social interactions. You're already seeing some of it. I mean, I think this is a huge problem to solve. I think it's a huge issue that's affecting teens. I don't have a really elegant solution for it apart from what I've shared, but um, I think 
uh, pediatricians are looking for solutions because ultimately those people are landing on their doorsteps. Well, James, I, I think you summed it up perfectly. I mean, we just have to find a way to be together. And, you know, sometimes the most simple concepts uh, really get at the heart of the matter, you know, like where we need to go and reorient our, our society. I mean, the Beatles said it well, you know, all you need is love. At the end of the day, that, that's what it all comes down to. Humans being together, socially connected, taking care of one another and living our best lives. I want to thank you personally for coming on our podcast and evangelizing around these important concepts and really bringing unity to this, uh, uh, these ideas of functional medicine and lifestyle with value-based care and all the great work that you're doing in community-based interventions. Real excited to, you know, about that. And you know, for our listeners out there that are like what they've heard and want to learn more, how can they find out more information and read more about you on social media or, or elsewhere? If you're interested in this topic generally, I think the book, The Community Cure, Transforming Health Outcomes Together was sort of like the best possible gift hopefully that I can give to people to really understand the potential of this medicine, all the different ways that it's being delivered and sort of my thesis on the future of value-based care. Um, we're implementing that future every day at healcommunity.com. And that's essentially we're delivering groups as a service in partnership with existing healthcare infrastructure. So clinics and groups and hospitals and ACOs and payers. So um, if you are involved in those areas, love to love to connect with you and see if there's a fit there. Instagram, I guess, uh, Mr. James Maskell on Instagram. Um, I'm spending more time on LinkedIn actually recently now than almost anything because ultimately the people that I'm looking to connect with are there. Eric, perfect example. Like I saw what you were doing. I saw that you were fired up about lifestyle medicine and that you were really understanding value-based care. And that's where we connected. So you can find me on LinkedIn, James Maskell. I'd love to hear from you. Well, thanks, James. I hope you're able to come on the podcast again in the future and spread the good word. We appreciate the work that you're doing in the value movement. And uh, again, thanks for your, your time this week and you know joining us on the Race to Value. Thank you.